Hi, Ron here and welcome. We love that you've come to join us here and listen to a lot of our episodes. Please help us continue with this by supporting us through either joining the Barack Center at thebarackcenter.com or joining us at the Fringe Church at thefringechurch.com and sharing and donating through those sources. And once again, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Here we go. Revelations chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come here, he said, and I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose adultery those who inhabit the earth have become drunk. He carried me away in the spirit to a desert place, and I saw a woman seated upon a scarlet beast, which was full of names, which were insults to God, which had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and bedazzling with gold and jewels and pearls. She had in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her fornication. And on her forehead there was written a name with a meaning that was secret except to those who knew its meaning. Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of God's saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I was stricken with a great wonder. The angel said to me, Why are you moved to wonder? I'll tell you the secret meaning of this woman and the beast who bears her and has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and is on its way to destruction. And the inhabitants of the earth, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be stricken with wonder when they see the beast, because it was, is not, and will come. Here there's need for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One at present exists. Another has not yet come. And when he shall come, must remain for a short time. The beast, which was, is not, is itself the eighth. It proceeds from the series of the seven, and it's on its way to destruction. The ten heads you saw are ten kings who've not yet received their royal authority, but they're to receive authority as kings for an hour in the company of the beast. They have one mind in common, and they hand over power and authority to the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them because he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the called and the chosen and the loyal shall share his victory. And he went on to say to me, the waters which you saw on which the harlot is seated are peoples and crowds and nations and tongues. The ten horns which you saw in the beast will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will devour her flesh and will burn her in the fire. For it's God who's put it into their minds to perform this purpose and to be of one mind to give her royal powers to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, like I said, here we go. I need to say right at the outset, I won't say this again, but boy, it's got to be heard. I am a local church pastor and a leader of a small network called Fringe Church. I am not a professional biblical scholar. There are great minds and excellent researchers who deal with these things, some of whom, of course, I have read. Um, I'm going to give you my conclusions 
that arise in my passion, which is to help people live well for Christ. This is not going to be academic, all right? It's going to be pastoral and hopefully helpful. And I'm not as smart as the guys that I've read. So you're going to find stuff. You're going to, but, 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 that's cool. Um, there's a lot of buts. We are going to cover about 3% of the available material in this as we move through. I'm just going to point you to the stuff I found helpful. So with that, let's go. There is a great prostitute. She's a city built on many rivers and on seven hills. The travel guides to Rome. If you Google city built on seven hills, you're going to find Rome. It's not hard to work that one out. This is all about Rome. The whore is Roma, the patron goddess of the capital, and also, by extension, Rome itself. The kings of the earth have slept with her. Well, today, uh, that party's in bed with that big company or that trade union. Same thing. Everyone's in bed with each other. They're, you know, they're doing stuff under cover of darkness they shouldn't do. Um, we meet the image of Rome out in the desert. Now, biblically, the desert is the place of spiritual conflict. It's the place where demons live and howl. It's the place where Jesus is tempted. It's where, you know, the snakes attack the people. It's, 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 it's where you go for spiritual battle. Well, that's where we're headed. The whore is shown in close alliance with this beast and is associated with blasphemous inscriptions. Haven't got time to describe them to you, but Rome was full of things that called the Caesars Saviour, Lord, God, all the stuff that belongs to God. Um, Domitian, as he went mad, claimed the title Lord and God. He started his edicts, Our Lord and Our God commands. Uh, and he was the one who made the worship of Roma compulsory throughout the entire empire and then began to enforce it. So it had gotten to a fever pitch by the time of Revelations. The city is called Babylon, um, obvious Old Testament illusion, um, the home of everything depraved, dark, ignoble. Um, the inscription written on her forehead is really interesting. Roman women wore headbands. Roman prostitutes um, put their names on the headbands. That's how you knew it was a working girl. So there are names written on a headband. You, you get the point? John is not excited. Well, <laughs> he's very excited about this woman in a lot of ways, but but in terms of what he thinks of her, he thinks she's toxic. Um, you know, somebody described her as a syphilitic, rattled whore. You know, Rome looks so good. It was the superpower. And John is here going, yeah, look at it through the eyes of God. It doesn't look the same. And that's why I think he said I was caught with wonder when I saw the truth of what God sees of the superpower of my time. She's this rattled, disgusting whore who is making love with all these powerful people who are about to turn on her and destroy her. Now, the image of whoring Rome, you're probably familiar with the, the stories of Messalina, Claudius, one of the emperor's wives. She was just such a nymphomaniac. I mean, she had to be mentally ill. She would leave as soon as Claudius was asleep. She would leave the, the emperor's palace, go down to a, a very common brothel where she had a room, she, um, she had a name by which she worked as a working. She would display herself naked and would take any customer that came in any condition, charge a standard prostitute's fee. She was the first to arrive, the last to leave. She loved it and she would go home stinking of her night's work. And, and that's the empress. <laughs> the, you know, the sexual conduct of the Roman aristocracy is, is legendary. 
Tacitus called Rome, the place into which from all over the world all atrocious and shameful things flow where they are most popular. I would love to tell you where that's found. I haven't got time. Seneca called Rome a filthy sewer. Uh, Promasius says Rome is called a harlot because she left her created creator and prostituted herself with devils. So John's assessment of Rome is not entirely um, uncommon. You know, the Roman commentators themselves actually in some cases said much worse things about their country than John did. But John is looking at this and he's shocked. He sees it through the eyes of God. Uh, and into this promiscuous, disgusting, hedonistic world is where Christianity arrived and found root. Well, may we speak of the miracles and triumphs of the cross. Anyway, this whore is drunk and she's drunk with the blood of the saints. Now, the Christians were killed in many ways, some of them more grotesque, dressing them in skins and letting huge dogs at them. Crucifixion, burning in oil. These were associated with entertainment and, and carnivals. Um, we've talked about Nero earlier. Rome was truly drunk with the blood of the saints. The populace loved it. Now, verse 8 is the Nero Redivivus myth. The beast was alive, died and returned. So this is this whole thing about Nero wasn't going to go, just, you know, that evil wasn't going to go just because one man died. Now, again, John is not alone. Juvenal, uh, one of the Roman historians said, <laughs> Rome is enslaved to a bald-headed Nero. Uh, Domitian was bald. Juvenal, Juvenal was killed. Uh, Eusebius repeated the same sort of claim. Now, verses 9 to 11 uh, really earth this. They're a sort of history of Rome, and they follow a history of, of Rome uh, organized by Tacitus. There are some real problems with it, and if you want to follow that up, you're going to have to do that on your own time. But the way Tacitus and then John pick this up, uh, he talks about the seven kings, five of whom have fallen, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, then Vespasian, um, followed by one that won't last long, Titus, and followed by the reincarnated Nero, Domitian. So make no mistake, John is flat out painting the picture of Rome using popular images, well, not popular, but using contemporary images for Rome, is writing a history of Rome. And the interest is on the eighth, um, this reincarnated depravity that was at work in Nero and is now back in Domitian. In him, all the worst excesses of Nero return and again are destroying the church. Now, the ten horns are fun. <laughs> if you if you find the book of Revelation fun. They could be Parthian envoys because the Parthians were a large part of the fall of Rome and that their armies appear in the book of Revelations fairly often. But my conclusion, and again, I've got 50-50 weight with scholars on this. My conclusion is that these are the priest kings, you know, in inverted commas, of Sibel and Attis, who, who Domitian gave that honorary title of kings to. My belief is, as we look through the book of Revelation, you will see this unholy alliance of a false whoring empire and a false whoring religion. And the religion gives kudos to the empire, you know, prophesies good things for the, the emperor and the leader and so on and on. And the emperor and the leader then give them what they want. That never happens anymore, of course. So... That's the principle that's being uncovered in this. 
Now, that's my conclusion. Um, could be the Parthian envoys, but I think it's these religious people, and I think it's this false joining of bad religion and oppressive politics. But even as this combination of antichrist religion and antichrist governance meets and gets into bed and prostitutes themselves with each other, as the kings of the earth come and, and get into bed with them, as the great and the mighty bow down, Jesus remains King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I'm here to tell you, the phrase King of Kings and Lord of Lords was not our idea. We flogged it from the Roman Empire. <laughs> they were calling themselves that. We dug our heels in and said, buddy, no. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not you. Now, that's gutsy. And our people did that. It's a very powerful little piece of witness. Now, the fate of this whoring empire is prophesied. It's dreadful. It's deserved. She will be judged as her previous lovers tear her to pieces, which isn't a bad summary of what actually happened at the fall of Rome. There's no loyalty among thieves. This, this empire, this global culture is divided against itself. Jesus said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. This one is no exception. And, um, and John actually is at this point being quite prophetic about the fall of Rome. So what chapter 17 says to its first audience is fairly easy to understand. The state has gone to war against the church. The church looks small, insignificant, under-resourced, hopeless. The state holds all the levers dominates culture and can do what they want to us. It looks pretty good. The deal with the devil is signed and sealed and looks to be very effective. There is a false empire and a false church. Looks can be deceptive. God's view, he can see the corruption, he can see the filth, and he can see the end. In fighting with the church, the empire is fighting with its Lord. Remember, Jesus' words to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? This is my body. When you do a number on it, you do unto me. Now watch it. <laughs> the battle between the church and the state provides the historical background of this book. We've got to get that right. When we've got that right, we have the first level of meaning. And that's our first job, is to understand what John was saying and what his people heard. When we've got that, we can go to the, the secondary things of, okay, well, what do we need to hear and what do we need to understand? And this book is written, uh, is it in um, Ephesians, you know, and having done all to stand. This is meant to prop the Christians up and say, guys, it looks horrid. It looks impossible. Jesus is King of Kings. Jesus is Lord of Lords. This will pass. Jesus will reign. You will reign with him. Persevere. In future, tomorrow, no, tomorrow, Monday, we will start taking much more bite-sized pieces. But that I just wanted to share with you by way of sort of introduction and setting. Let's come to God. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the patience of these dear people who have hung in there <laughs> for a long time this morning. Father, Thank you. Thank you for your people who had the, the courage and the cheek 
to stand up against massed political power, military might, economic sanction, popular culture, authors and influencers who were, were fighting them and, and causing them grief, to stand up against pain, to stand up against rejection, to stand up against being impoverished, hurt, beaten, even tortured and killed for entertainment and just folded their arms and in a last great act of defiance said, yeah, kill me if you can, Jesus is still Lord. Father, we live in a time when we have confused comfort with the blessing of God. Father, help us to get a little bit of this rough and readiness into us, a little bit that says, I don't understand anything, I'm hurting, I don't get it, but Jesus is still Lord and I'm not moving. Father, make us like that. These things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you very much for hanging in for a very long one. That'll be shorter from here. It'll look much more like it used to. But um, thus finisheth the setup for the book of Revelation. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 1 on Monday morning. God bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode. And please, don't forget to sign up to the thebarackcenter.com or thefringechurch.com and help support us so we can reach many more. Thank you again for joining us today.